All right, let's pray and we'll get into this morning's message. Lord, thank you so much for this generous church. Lord, thank you that there are people in this room who give and only you know about it. Lord, you know the sacrifices that families make to tithe. You know the sacrifices that families are making to give to our building project. You know the sacrifices families make so that we can send missionaries all around the world so that people can know Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning I pray that, Lord, you would just continually grow us in the grace of giving. And Lord, I pray that during the month of December you would just bless this church and move upon our hearts to bless those who need compassion. Jesus, you care for the least of these. And Lord, I pray now in our service that your spirit would come and that you would speak through me, God. Lord, people today don't need a good message from Joe. They need a good message from the spirit of God, from the word of God. And so, God, I'm asking you to do in this service what only you can do. I thank you for the time of worship we had this morning. Lord, I pray that this would just be a continuation. Lord, that you are who we need and you are who our hearts long for. We love you, God. Thank you for this time in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, but first I want to tell you a story. Uh, for the last three years uh, in the spring, I have been coaching my son Joseph's Little League baseball team. Coaching kids who are six, seven, eight, nine has proved to be challenging. The team usually breaks down like this. There's five kids who absolutely love baseball and they actually want to learn what you have to teach them about baseball. Then there's five kids who love drawing pictures in the dirt. All right, that's why they're there. They love playing. They, like, and maybe you're like, oh, yeah, that was me in Little League. Yeah, and that's just like super frustrating to coach kids who don't want to be there only because their parents want them to be there. And then there's usually one or two kids who are brand new and have never played baseball before. Now, I know this is going to be a shocker, but... You know, that, that, that's like me. If you just look on the screen, like, that's what it's like. Like, I'm not the most patient guy in the world, okay? So I struggle with being patient. God's working in my life, but I struggle with that. So it can be frustrating coaching kids who don't want to be there. The kids who love baseball are a blast to coach. The kids who draw pictures in the dirt, like, they're challenging my love for Jesus. Like, when I'm there, like, oh, my gosh, I just, like, what's going to happen? Maybe you should just go home and play video games. But the most challenging kids to coach in a good way are the kids who've never played before. This year I coached a kid who I will call John. That's not his real name. The name has been changed to protect the innocent. But this year I coached a kid who I'll call John, and John never played baseball before. And he showed up on the first day of practice and he forgot his baseball glove. Like that's how unaware John was about the game of baseball. I had to show him how to hold the baseball. The first time I saw him throw a baseball, I was terrified. It was just like, oh my goodness, like, I think my grandma threw better than that. I had to show him which hand his glove went on. I had to teach him how to hold the bat, which was scary because timing was not John's gift. I had to teach him the name of every position on the field. John, you got to go to this base and you got to stand here. And when the ball comes to you, you got to watch the game. When the ball comes to you, you got to step on this base here. You got to throw it over here. Like he knew nothing about the game of baseball. And as the season got closer, I even had to have a talk with John's father and told him that his son needed to wear a cup during the games. 
You're like, that's awkward. Yes, it was extremely awkward. Like I said, John knew nothing about baseball. So in the most awkward moment of my decorated coaching career, John's dad showed up to the next practice with the newly purchased cup and asked me in front of all the players and the parents from a distance, hold it up, he goes, is this good, Coach Joe? Is this the right size? Just, yes, it's wonderful. Let's never talk about this again. I stood there that moment wondering, I know for a stone-cold fact I did not sign up for this. As the season wore on, one of the best parts of the season was seeing John make drastic improvements. I didn't think he would even make contact with the ball, seriously. I didn't even think he had a sporting chance to hit anything. But he finished the year with a handful of hits. So, what does it have to do with First Peter? Peter's audience was a lot like John. Many of them were beginners to following Jesus, and there were aspects of the Christian life that were brand new to them. See, part of Peter's audience showed up at the field of Christianity and they forgot their glove. They didn't know that part of following Jesus was going to include suffering. So Peter actually, if you were to kind of hold my feet to the fire and say, why do you think Peter wrote the book of First Peter? I would say because he wanted to teach these newer Christians scattered throughout what we know today as modern-day Turkey. He wanted to teach them how to suffer. Peter's audience was enduring real persecution, and it meant real suffering for them, all because of their faith in Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at part of the letter where Peter is going to train us how Christians are supposed to respond when they find themselves suffering. Today's message is all about how to suffer well. You're like, I don't actually want to know how to do that. That's no problem. You're, you're, I, I understand that. Now, let me just kind of put this message in context for you because I'm pretty passionate about being precise in my Bible teaching. I don't always get it right, but I want to be precise. Peter's audience was suffering because of persecution. Many of us, not all, but many of us have never faced any suffering because we've been persecuted. But I still think this morning that the things Peter tells these new believers about how to suffer well can apply very directly to your life and to my life when we're suffering. Whether it's cancer, whether it's a job loss, whether it's some financial strain that you're walking through, maybe even a difficult marriage. I actually think that these verses translate to help us walk through any kind of suffering, even though Peter's original intent was to help people who were suffering because they love Jesus Christ. So let's get into it. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter asks this question. This is how he begins how to suffer well. Who is going to harm you, he asked the church. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Peter starts off with a question that I think has an obvious answer. No one. 
When you're eager to do the right thing, you usually don't get harmed for that, right? And usually that's the case. But then verse 14 says this, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. So let me ask you this question this morning. When's the last time you were suffering and you looked in the mirror and said, what a blessing. You just woke up one morning and life was really painful and you were walking through some really dark stuff and you woke up and you were brushing your teeth and you looked in the mirror and you knew you were suffering and you said, I am blessed. See, we associate the blessings of God with a raise at work, healthy children, and a parking space near the front of the mall on Black Friday. Like that's kind of how we think about God's blessing. We think we're blessed if God makes our lives better and easier and more comfortable. But Peter says, suffering for doing good is a blessing. Now, that is an absolutely ridiculous idea. Where did Peter get something like that? Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says this during the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Did you hear that? Blessed are those who are persecuted because they do good for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Peter says, if you're suffering for doing good, you're blessed. But then he quotes Isaiah chapter 8 verses 12 and or excuse me, 11 and 12. And what Peter is saying is he says, if you're suffering for doing good, you're blessed, but don't be afraid. Do not fear what they fear. Peter says, don't be afraid, but instead in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Here's the first thing we need to know if we're going to suffer well. We need to fight fear with faith. We need to fight fear with faith. The reason suffering is so difficult, and if you're here this morning and you're suffering, suffering is hard, isn't it? Like you wish you weren't suffering. The reason suffering is so difficult is because it is filled with so much what? Uncertainty. And I don't know about you, but I usually react to uncertainty with what? Fear. When I'm in a trial, when I'm suffering, what am I? Afraid. A lot of us, when we walk through hard things, it's easy to get scared. And what does fear do in our life? Fear saps our strength, our hope, our peace, and our joy. Because fear is a natural reaction to hostility and suffering. Like, it's a natural reaction. If you start suffering, you get afraid. That's a normal thing that happens to people. And you know what I love about Peter? Peter doesn't just look at the church and say, stop being afraid. He doesn't just say, stop it. You know how you stop being afraid? You just stop. My daughter Lucy began this school year. She's seven years old, and she's in second grade. And my daughter Lucy started second grade each morning with a lot of tears because she struggles with fear about going to school. She was afraid of her teacher, who's a wonderful person, by the way, and she was afraid of being away from Cheryl, my wife. Honestly, it was and sometimes still is really hard to help Lucy when she gets afraid about going to school. 
But one thing is really obvious when I try to help Lucy stop being afraid. If I get angry that she's upset and I just yell at her, Lucy, there's nothing to be afraid of. Stop. That's not super helpful with a seven-year-old who's very emotional. She needs some concrete reasons why she should choose faith over fear. We say things to her like, your teacher really loves you. He's really kind. We say, everyone at your school loves you, and they do. Like they fawn all over Lucy, like, like she's the best, and she's still afraid. And we say, Lucy, there's nothing to be afraid of. You are surrounded by people who deeply care for you. And then my favorite is, Lucy, there's nothing to be afraid of. You'll be home in six hours. It's not going to be that long. It's just a day of school. You need that kind of help when you're afraid also. You need to know what to hold on to when you're suffering and facing uncertainty. So Peter tells us how to do that. He says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. The way to combat the fear that comes from suffering is to set your heart on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Catch this. The way to battle the fear that that grips your heart when you're suffering and going through a trial is by setting your heart and your mind on the rock-solid truth that Jesus Christ rules, sovereignly rules, is in complete control of every detail of your life. You are not suffering on accident. God is not aware of, unaware of your suffering. He's not shocked that you're walking through a trial. So Peter says to the church, you're suffering, don't be afraid, and here's what you're supposed to do instead. Set apart Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord over all. Like, know that he is in charge of every detail. Instead of saying, I'm afraid, Peter coaches us to say, Jesus sees this. Jesus is in control of this. Jesus hasn't abandoned me. He is my Lord. He is my rock. He sees me, he knows me, and he has my back. See, I can stop being afraid if I redirect my fears onto Christ. I can stop being afraid because we often feel afraid because things feel so out of control. And what Peter is saying is, is nothing is out of control. Christ is Lord. You want to make it through suffering without becoming bitter and self-absorbed? Because that's what we all do if we don't suffer well. We become bitter and self-consumed. Fight your fear with faith in the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing that Peter wants us to know about how to suffer well. He says this. This is a familiar verse to many of us. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So think about the situation. you got to think about this. Think about the situation Peter is assuming his audience is going to experience. Peter is expecting, he has the expectation that Christians will face moments when they are being persecuted for their faith, where they are suffering, and people around them will be thrown off by how they are responding to the suffering. Peter expects that followers of Jesus would be living with so much hope that people would look at your life and my life while we're suffering and ask us, what's with you, man? 
What's with you being kind and gentle to people who mistreat you? How do you have so much hope in the presence of so much pain? Peter expects that people would notice our lives. What sends a normal person into despair and anger causes a follower of Jesus to live with audacious hope. Like followers of Jesus are supposed to look suffering in the teeth and say, my God reigns and there's a better day coming. Like our lives are supposed to be grounded by so much hope that people smell that and people see that and then they get curious and they ask us, what's with you? How can someone facing so much have so much peace? So what does Peter tell us to do when others ask us? Why do you have so much hope? The second thing we do when we suffer well is share your hope. Share your hope. This is powerful. Suffering well is actually an opportunity to witness to the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. Suffering well can lead to evangelism. Some of you have experienced this. You've walked through some dark trials and people around you who didn't know Christ have seen how you've walked through it and you've been able to share with them why you have so much hope in the face of so much adversity. Now, let me just say something about this verse. Some people read this verse and have made the argument that Christians should be prepared to give a well-thought-out response to every objection and doubt people have about Christianity or the existence of God. People who love apologetics point to this verse and say, always be prepared to give an answer, meaning you need to be able to defend the faith logically, historically, philosophically. And I think those are wonderful things, but that is not what Peter is telling us to do here. Look again at what Peter says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Not address the doubts that they have, but to give a reason for the hope that's in you. This should cause you and I to ask ourselves two very personal questions. I think everyone needs to ask ourselves this question this morning. Am I living my life with hope? How is your life noticeably different than those who don't know Jesus? Do you respond to suffering with fear, anger, and self-pity, or with hope, faith, and peace? What do your actions say about where your hope is? Where do your actions say about, excuse me, what do your actions say about where your hope is? Like, what does your giving say about your hope? What does your time with Jesus in the mornings or the evenings say about your hope? What does your love for those who are different than you say about your hope? What does your compassion for the hurting say about your hope? See, some of us, we're not living very hopeful lives because we're living just like the rest of the world. We're chasing financial security, success, and personal autonomy. Some of us, the goal of our lives is to retire well. That's not a very hope-filled life. That's wildly depressing. Is that a fine goal? Yes. But if that's the motivating center of your life, you're not living with hope. Your hope is in having a few good years to enjoy the beach and the golf course. That is not the Christian life. We have a hope that goes beyond this life. 
Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has risen, and we will rise with him. And we will spend eternity in the presence of God, full of joy, and hope will no longer be needed because what we have been hoping for is ours forever. And in between here and there, living in hope means making our lives about Jesus Christ and his mission, not about my comfort. Where we put our hope governs our behavior. Sometimes we never get to share the hope we have in Christ because it's really hard to tell we have any. Here's the second question. Why is my hope in Jesus? This is a question you should be asking yourself. Why is my hope in Jesus? Are you able to articulate why you are a Christian? Again, I'm not talking about sounding really smart or being able to quote 10,000 Bible verses. I think Peter simply wants us to be able to tell someone why we have given our lives to Jesus. God is not honored if we believe him for no reason. Sometimes Cheryl and I will playfully ask one another, you know, just in the mornings or before we go to bed, we'll just look at each other and and she might ask me or I might ask her, do you love me? You ever do that with your spouse? Do you love me? And we just kind of stop what we're doing, and the other person looks the other person in the eye, and we're like, yeah, of course, absolutely. I absolutely love you. And usually the conversation ends there, and and we just walk away with that warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah, okay, yes, I love you. But sometimes my wife gets me, and she says, do you love me? And I say, absolutely, honey. And then she says, why? Oh, that takes some what? Thought. And if I give her the same reason every time, I'm not thinking. Just a little pro tip there, dudes. Every Christian needs to be able to share why they love and believe in Jesus. And you're not allowed to say, because I go to church, or my parents believe. There's actually a whole system of thinking that maybe even you grew up with this thinking, like, I'm a Christian because I come from a family of Christians. When you stand before God, the question is not going to be, hey, did your family believe in Jesus? Yeah, my great-grandfather did. You're in. That's not how it works. You need to put your faith in Christ. And if you're having a hard time wondering right now, like, why is my faith in Jesus? That's a good little personal crisis to have. This week, a young woman from our church, her name's Brandy Sosa. I know some of you know Brandy. She posted this paragraph on her Facebook page, and when I read it, I was moved. And I thought this is what Peter would want all of us to be able to do. Listen to what Brandy just, she just posted it this week. I was working on my message, and I saw this, and I was like, bingo, that's it. This is what Brandy says. There is hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary. His name is Jesus, and his ear is always bent to the cries of the lost looking for their Savior. He is the only one who has the peace and comfort that you are looking for. It's not in a bottle or pill or anything else that brings temporary relief. He is the one our hearts long for. He is the one who can fill the longing in our souls and bring healing to our hearts. 
He will not turn us away for the things we've done in the past, but instead redeem it and make our lives new. My favorite sentence right here. I know, I know because he's done it for me and I was the least deserving. Do you know why your hope is in Christ? What has Jesus done for you? I want to challenge you directly, intensely. Take some time this week and sit down with a pen and a paper. And if you don't know what that is, sit down and open up Microsoft Word or Pages and write down why your hope is in Jesus Christ. You don't have to write 12 pages. Write down why your hope is in Jesus. Force yourself to think about it. Force yourself to articulate it. Force yourself not to just be a passive, like thoughtless, like, oh, I'll just do whatever you tell me. No, no. Think. Why is your hope in Christ? And then after you've done that, share it with someone. You're like, oh, that, I might do part one, but I'm not doing part two. Okay, share it with someone you know and you're comfortable talking to with. Maybe a spouse or one of your children Maybe someone in your connection group. You're like, well, it says to give an answer to people who don't know Christ, but it also says be prepared. I think all of us need to be prepared with our testimony about what Christ has done so that when God gives us an opportunity, we're ready to speak. Peter wants us to know that suffering well means we are prepared to share the hope that is in us. Here's the last thing that Peter says about suffering well. 1 Peter 3.17, Peter says, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here's the third thing you need to know if you're going to suffer well. Suffering serves God's purposes. Suffering serves God's purposes. Your suffering serves God's purposes. This is one of those verses that absolutely obliterates any notions we may have that God's will for our lives never involves trials and suffering. Some of you believe that. Some of us are in this room and we think God's job is to make my life easy. And Peter says, if you're suffering for doing good, it could be God's will. Like God is behind that. On the flip side, I don't want us to assume God's will for our lives is always suffering. I don't believe that either. I mean, thank the Lord. Could you imagine? However, Peter wants us to know that if we are suffering for doing good, God is working. Again, we live our lives under the assumption that clean living should result in less suffering. Some of you have that transactional relationship with God. God, if I do the right things, you owe me an easy life. And most of the time, when we do the right things, we don't suffer. But you can live a really good life and get cancer. You can live a really good life and go bankrupt. There are times when God wills that we suffer. Just like he willed that Peter's original audience would experience some suffering. So here's a very fair question. I know that you're probably asking this question. I was asking this question. Why? Why are there moments in my life that God wills that I suffer? 
Why would God will moments in your life where you are going to suffer? Why? That seems so rude and mean-spirited. And we just sang, good, good father. And you had a tear in your eye. And you're like, yes! And you're like, this is not congruent with a good, good father. Right? You're like, okay, that, yeah, like I wasn't thinking about that, but that's a really great point. Think about what Peter just said. He made the case that the suffering of the church is an opportunity to share with others the hope they have in Christ. Catch this. There are times when God wills that his people suffer unjustly in order that people who don't know him can see the love and grace and reality of Jesus Christ in their lives and share their hope. And I think this makes us uncomfortable because we've forgotten that Jesus said to us, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus did not say, come to me and I'll make your dreams come true. Jesus calls us to suffer at times so that we can serve him as his witnesses that he is real. To our neighborhood, to our family, to our friends, even to one another, even to those who know Christ. I've watched people in this church walk through some very deep valleys. And you know what one of the most beautiful things is? Watching their faith and their trust and their love for Christ deepen as the valley gets deeper. Because that's what's supposed to happen during suffering. Our love and affection and realization that we need Christ deepens, and our hope gets cleared away from all the temporary things of this world, and we hold on to God because we don't have anything else to hold on to. And in those moments, God is going to use your life to point everyone around you and say, this hope can be yours too. And if you're still resistant to the idea that suffering serves God's purposes, If you still think that's not how God works, Peter reminds us that the most righteous person who ever lived suffered so that your life and my life could be changed forever. Listen to Peter's train of thought here in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 17 and then to 18. He says, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So there's no real like bonus for suffering for doing the wrong thing. That's just called consequences. But if you are suffering for doing good, that's God's will. And then he says this. Listen to what he connects next. For Christ, okay, so if you suffer for doing good, he wants you to know something about Jesus. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. It was through the excruciating death of Jesus Christ. It was through the suffering of the only perfectly righteous man who ever lived that unrighteous people like you and like me could be brought into relationship with God. God had total control over the death of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. I'm not going to read it. 
But Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28, talks about how evil men gathered in the city of Jerusalem, Gentiles and high priests and the Roman government and the Jewish leaders, evil and wicked men, they conspired together to put Christ to death. And then it says, they were doing what God had planned to do. The evil of men putting the the Son of God on the cross, the greatest sin in the history of the world was done because of the will of God. Why would God use evil men to accomplish His will? So that we can be brought near to God. Like God's plan goes beyond your comfort and into the good and the eternity of others. When we suffer, Peter wants us to realize that God just might want to use our suffering so that others might be brought near to God as we share with them our hope in Christ. The Christian life is all about becoming more and more like Christ. And like Jesus, God can use your suffering to make himself known to others. I don't think we should be people who are looking to suffer, wanting to suffer, praying to suffer. But I do think we should be people who are ready to suffer and suffer well. You will suffer. You will suffer. I hope it's not today. I hope it's not this month. But you are going to walk through some trials. Every godly person I've ever met has walked through some serious trials trials. And the question is, are we going to suffer well? Are our lives going to be so consumed with Jesus Christ that we say, God, whatever you want to do in this, whoever you want to bring to you through this, my life is yours. God, I pray this suffering would end as soon as possible but I've set you apart as Lord in my heart. And you are sovereign over my suffering. And you are sovereign over my circumstances. And I will not be afraid. And I will not be defeated. And I will fix my eyes on Christ. And I will trust Him that He sees me and He knows my name and He knows what I'm walking through. And God, when people ask me how I can live with such audacious hope, I'm going to say, my hope is in Jesus because. And I'm going to trust that your purposes are being accomplished. My suffering is not in vain. Even though I don't know the purpose of it, you do. Because I've set you apart as Lord. Are we willing to be those kinds of people? Are we willing to trust God even through and in our suffering? I want to close by saying this one very simple thought. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily you can be forgiven for your sin. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily you can have the righteousness of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily you can go to heaven when you put your faith in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't even primarily you've been made new through your faith. Peter gives us a definition for the gospel that absolutely needs to revolutionize how we think about the gospel. He says that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you've been brought to God. The gospel is not about getting forgiveness or heaven. The gospel is about getting God. He's who you need. Yes, He forgives your sin. Yes, He makes you new. Yes, you will spend eternity forever with Him when you trust Christ. But the best gift is Himself. And what you need most during this Christmas season is Himself. And I echo the words of my friend Brandy. He is the one your soul longs for. Stop trying to get things from Him and realize the gift is Him and He's yours. So I would encourage you, enjoy Him deeply. Rejoice that He is yours. We sang it this morning. Rejoice. God has sent His Son and we have Him, and we have God, because through Jesus, we have been brought to the Father. And there is no barrier, and you don't need a pastor or a priest or a grandmother to go to Him. He is a good, good Father, and He is in control of your life, and He wants that you would enjoy relationship with him because of the death and resurrection of his son. Let's pray together. Lord, I just sent you reminding me this morning or showing me this morning that there's people in this room who, Lord, they've come to Christ. They've come to the Father to get something from God. And Lord, they're blind to the fact that they, they need just God Himself. And Holy Spirit, I can't, I can't do that work, but I pray today and I pray even now that you would break down walls in people's hearts. And Lord, you would awaken us to the beauty and the truth and the joy that we have been brought near and there's no separation between us and God. That our sin hasn't separate us, separated us so much from God that we can't come near. Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin. And all the shame and all the guilt and all the ways we beat ourselves up because we know we don't measure up. Christ has measured up for us and we can run into your presence. And you want us and you're ready for us. And what you want to give us most is relationship with you. I pray that you'd help us to not be looking always for blessings from your hand. But we would be looking for more of you. More of you in our lives. 
Let us be a church that deeply enjoys God. Help us. Help us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before you leave today, I just want to share a few quick things. Number one, before you leave today, on your way out, drop your orange cards in the buckets if you'd do that. Next week is Music Sunday. Um, We'll have our kids sing. We'll sing some carols. We'll still have a message. Music Sunday is a great week to invite friends. I want to encourage you to invite friends and family with you. We'll have more Christmas cookies than you could even imagine eating. And uh, we'll just love to have a great time together. Also, if you just uh, hang tight for one second, right after service, for about 10 minutes, we're going to have our guest reception. Some of you are like, well, I'm new, but I don't know how long this thing is going to take. Uh, After service is over, you just go out this uh, door over here. There's an exit sign. Hang a left, and you'll see some curtains and some tables. We'll have a guest reception. It'll start in about five or seven minutes, and then it'll last about seven to ten minutes. It's not long, but we'd love for you to come if you've never been to one of our guest receptions before. I want to invite our prayer partners to come forward this morning. If you're here today and you know that you need Jesus Christ, If you want to give your life to Christ, you can let one of these prayer partners know. If you're here this morning and you're suffering and you're walking through a trial and you need someone to pray with you, these folks can pray with you. If there's anything weighing on your heart today, bring it to God. Let these people minister to you this morning. And one last thing I want to say today is simply this. At the conclusion of our service, in just about like two minutes, this place is going to turn from a just kind of a quiet, reflective space into a madhouse. And we're going to be putting chairs away and tearing down curtains, and and the kids are going to come back, and, and we're going to be trying to put everything away, and it's just going to get a little chaotic. And um, every week, there's a few of us, probably a lot of us, who think, oh my goodness, I hope none of the kids get hurt because the kids are running and we're pushing heavy things. And, and I just want to remind you, if you're a parent, would you do us, uh, I would ask you to do two things. Number one, can we not let any kids run in that hallway because that's where all the boxes are being pushed and someone could get seriously injured. And then the second thing I would say is, in this room, when your kids are here, you're responsible for them. So please have an eye on them because my heart here is not to make their lives hard. My heart is, is that we would keep them safe. And if you see someone running, we're never going to be the church that gets angry and yells at kids. We want people to feel the love and the kindness of Christ. And so if you see someone running or you see a dangerous situation, feel free to say, hey, be careful, but do it with so much gentleness and love that that child's not going to walk out of here thinking, wow, that person really treated me terrible. I hope I never see him again at church. We want to be a church that loves our kids. And part of loving them is keeping an eye out for them. So if we could do that today and every day, like from this point forward, we just want to make sure they're safe. Have a great week. See you at Music Sunday.